such a uniquely horrific, vicious, horrible crime. Mother of two, Julie Jensen, is found dead in her bed. The defendant, Mark Jensen, is accused of killing his wife, Julie, by poisoning her with antifreeze. The circumstances surrounding her mysterious death would drag marital secrets into the light. Infidelity, porn, and poison. I've never had anything like it. This case is incredibly unique. The trial for Mark Jensen gets underway today in Kenosha. We go inside the trial and inside the home in an unprecedented murder case. I was the DA back then in 1998. District Attorney Bob Jamboys is there the day Julie Jensen's body is found, just weeks before Christmas, nearly a quarter century ago. Here we are today, 24 years, one month, 28 days after the homicide of Julie Jensen. And now there's a new twist in the case. In 2021, a judge overturning a key piece of evidence. Jensen has maintained he's innocent and that his wife died by suicide. The tragedy of Julie Jensen, and there are many, is she can't escape gaslighting even in death. Julie Jensen is gone, but will the jury get to hear her last words. If anything happens to me. 2020 unravels 25 years of twists, turns, and courtroom drama. It's a tale of despair, a tale of diabolical proportions, and yet, you know, all set in this setting that is so pastoral and really just a lovely place. This all begins years ago in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. Pleasant Prairie is a very small, growing community in southeastern Wisconsin, adjacent to Kenosha. Along the lakefront, there is some very lovely and affluent property where people have homes right on Lake Michigan, fabulous views, beaches, you know, kind of a idyllic setting, and, and this is where the Jensen's live. When Mark and Julie met, they were so young. They were students. Mark was working at a Sears selling suits to pay for his education. Julie was studying to be a nurse. Julie was the type of person that when she would smile, her smile would light up the room. She just had that kind of aura about her. Julie was the only girl in a family with four boys. She was second to the oldest in her family. My parents were dancers. They, they loved to go dance. So, so on like a, a Saturday night, they would go out dancing. And so Julie would babysit Patrick, me, and Michael. I'm the baby of the family. She was so much older that, in fact, there was times where I looked at her like my second mom, kind sure. of, you know, babysitting, and she'd always have my hand. Julie was the kindest person you'd ever want to meet. Anyone who entered her circle left better than when they came. Julie came from a family that had some, some problems. Her mother had been an alcoholic. According to Mark, Julie had some issues. She was a little bit depressed. They decided to get married. Julie never finished her degree, but Mark went on to be successful in finance. Mark is a stockbroker. 
Now he's following in the footsteps of his father, Dan Jensen, who is also in finance. The Jensen's are a proud family. Dan Jensen was very accomplished. He was known in the community. There was even an ad talking about his integrity and how trustworthy he was. In 1990, Mark and Julie welcomed their first son. Five years after David was born, their son, Douglas, was born. Julie definitely was very close to her boys, and she was just a wonderful mother. Julie loved her family. She called them my three Ds, Daddy, David, and Douglas. She actually drove around in her car with a license plate that said, my three Ds. It was really very much her identity. I think what impressed me a lot about Julie that I liked was she literally was a hands-on mom. The Jensen's had a pool, and neighborhood kids would come over to play. Their son, David Jensen, remembers it as one of his happiest memories as he shared in court. During the summer, we were um, absolute fish. Uh, we were in the pool just constantly, <laughs> Doug and I, um, Doug with his little floaties. She just wanted to enrich people's lives. It just came natural for Julie. Mark did not want her working. He wanted her to stay at home and keep the house and care for the children, and those would be her responsibilities. We spoke to Julie Jensen's friends and family in 2008. Mark was the provider, but she provided as a good mother, housekeeper, you know, mowing the grass, taking his boat for repairs. Julie took care of everything from the clothes, the laundry, the house, the, the meals. And it was even a joke to them sometimes in the house that Mark didn't know how to cook a, a, a box of macaroni and cheese. I always knew that she, she made that family work. And I sensed that she wasn't really kind of connected to Mark spiritually. Julie also makes time for volunteering here at Southport Elementary School. Every Wednesday morning, she spends time in her son David's third grade classroom, helping his teacher, Therese DeFazio. Yes, she wanted to help me out, so I asked her, can you come and work in the computer lab with me? Because at that time, that was a brand new thing to have uh, computers in the school. And she says, oh no, I can't do that. So is that something that you generally do with room mothers, figure out the ways they can help you? Right. Oh, she said, I can't even turn on a computer. Uh, she says, my son David helps me. We got a new IBM at home, she said, and uh, I have to ask David to come and teach me. Back in 1998, there were no smartphones, no tablets. Most families didn't even have a home computer, but the Jensen's did. There were computers that were in offices, but it was rare to have a computer in a home. Only about 40% of American homes had computers in them at that time. Only about a quarter of them had internet access. The Jensen home may have cutting edge technology, but it also has problems. I think a lot of people who saw Julie saw this seemingly perfect marriage, attractive couple, beautiful children. She seemed to be living sort of the American dream, but there were a handful of people that Julie told her secrets. She wasn't sure what was going on. 
It's driving me crazy. That's what she said. They start finding pornographic photos left around their yard and the deck. Somebody was really tormenting her and not letting her forget what she had done. Mark and Julie Jensen looked like an um, all-American family, very middle class and doing well. But things were not so well inside the household. Looking back at their early marriage, Julie really struggles after the birth of their first son, David. She was alone much of the time, taking care of a baby while her husband was away at work. Shortly after Julie had David, she filed for divorce. Julie shared with us that she had filed for divorce in 1991. She was tired of um, Mark's behavior because he was more interested in drinking and partying and doing guy stuff. She'd gone to the doctor and was treated for postpartum depression, was really struggling with the fact that she felt Mark resented her affection and attention to their newborn. After David is born, Julie works part-time at a brokerage firm. And one weekend, Mark was out of town for work. And apparently he traveled a lot, which meant she was home alone with the baby. Julie invites a male coworker named Perry Tarika over for dinner on a weekend when Mark is out of town. He came over for dinner and ended up spending the weekend. So she cheated on Mark. Julie, um ended up telling me about the affair. It was really difficult for Julie to share that. She was so embarrassed, but I thought maybe Julie's found somebody else. And honestly, the way Mark treated her, I wouldn't have seen a problem with that. Mark finds out about the brief affair. I think she would have gotten out of that marriage, but what she said to me was that Mark wouldn't agree to a divorce. And his exact words that she told me were, you'll never see David again. And Julie stayed, obviously, because she didn't want to lose David. And with that threat being held over her, there was nothing that she could do but try to compromise somehow, I guess. Um, and that's when Julie and Mark started uh, doing marriage counseling. Ultimately, Julie withdraws her petition for divorce. After Julie told Mark about her weekend fling with Perry Tarika, weird things started happening. There was this parade of vile pornographic images popping up everywhere. These are photos that are sexually explicit, and they're close-ups of genitalia. They were on printer paper, and they were posted either on their door, their shed on Mark's windshield in their house. There were not only photos, but there were prank phone calls. Somebody was really tormenting her and not letting her forget what she had done. Julie Jensen reports the harassment to the Pleasant Prairie Police Department. Her husband Mark tells them he thinks her ex-lover is stalking her but he's since moved to another state and police rule him out as a suspect. And yet, the pornographic photos and harassing phone calls continue for another six years. It's 
The police told her to keep a log of all these incidents. Ultimately, when they weren't able to resolve the mystery of who was planting this stuff, with the help of the police, they decided they needed to take this into their own hands. They hired a private investigator. My initial thought was that they were either taken from the internet and printed, or they were photocopied out of a pornographic magazine. But what struck me about the photos that was odd was that Julie felt fairly strongly that they were of her. I knew 100% when I saw them they were not Julie. So whoever put together these photos tried to make them look enough like her to convince her. Yes. Someone was obviously uh, attempting to cause some humiliation, and I was thinking about who would have the motive to do something like that. My suspicion at that point was it's Mark. Why would Mark Jensen spend years tormenting his wife with pornographic images? Well, I think he couldn't get over the fact that his wife was with another man. How did you break the news to Julie Jensen that it could have been her husband behind this harassment? Well, I just came straight out and asked her. And she said, well, I, I, I don't want to think that. It was your sense. She didn't want to believe it. No, no, not at all. Julie has a close-knit group of friends in a neighborhood book club. Julie hosted November Book Club at her house. She had made snacks like we always did. It was getting closer to the holidays, so we talked about holiday plans. We read A Simple Plan, and that's the book that Julie picked. They made a movie out of it. I remember seeing the movie, too. Yeah. It's a story of lies, betrayal, and murder. Come on, let's just all settle down. We're talking to the That night, the weather wasn't very good, and it was very windy outside, and the cover from the spa at their home had blown off and snapped one of their trees. She was very concerned about what was going to happen when Mark got home and how she was going to explain what happened. I thought that slightly odd because it was truly an accident. We all got the impression that she was definitely worried that Mark was going to create an issue for her. I mean, that was very apparent. And it was uncomfortable for all of us to witness. Their next door neighbors recounted a number of conversations with Julie, that she was afraid of Mark, uh, that he was very controlling. She was sitting there, she was with her head dropped down between her leg. She was just crying there. And I said something about divorce, and Julie said, Mark would kill me first before he divorced me. It's December 1998, and Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin is filled with Christmas cheer. But there's little joy for Julie Jensen. Mark told friends that Julie was really depressed, overwrought. On the first day of December in 1998, Julie Jensen went to see Dr. Richard Borman, the family physician for the Jensens. Dr. Borman recommends counseling for her depression, and he gives her some samples of Paxil, an antidepressant. 
Kelly's doctor said she had lost eight pounds between September and December. And she weighed 115, which is quite thin. On Wednesday, David goes to school. And that's the day that Julie Jensen would go and assist in his third grade class. But on this Wednesday, his teacher says, well, where's your mother? And he says, well, she's, she's home. She's not feeling well. She's sick. On the second day that Julie is not feeling well, Mark Jensen goes back to Dr. Richard Borman and says she's having difficulty resting. Dr. Borman prescribes exactly 10 tablets of Ambien, gives those to Mark so that he can take those home to Julie. Mark said he gave her Benadryl. She was taking Ambien and then the antidepressant. You know, she's taking highly depressive substances. So she's really knocked out. I was in the kitchen and I saw Mark leaving. And just as he left, Julie's calling me. voice was different. She sounded drunk. And she said, I took this medicine, and I didn't know it's going to have such an effect on me. And I'm like, are you OK? Do you need any help? And she's like, no, no. She said, Mark is taking care of me. And she keeps saying, Mark is being good to me, and which was very strange. That was the last time I spoke to her. On the morning of Thursday, December 3rd, 1998, Julie wakes up and she's not breathing well. She felt kind of drunk. She had had already three doses of Ambien and the antidepressant Paxil. Her eight-year-old son David noticed her breathing was, was not good. Her breathing was raspy that morning, but she still, you know, gave us a hug, told us she loved us, um, and, you know, before we left. He asked his dad, can't we take her to the hospital? Can we get her help? And Mark didn't take her to the hospital. He didn't do anything. She was at home very ill, and yet her husband let her lie there for two days. and and didn't get help. The boys go to daycare and to school, but Mark's co-workers say he doesn't show up for work that day. I saw Mark Johnson just driving by himself around 9.30 in the morning, and I just said, that's really odd. It was just very odd, very unusual to see that. Hours later, Mark goes to pick up the boys. When they get home, Mark tells the boys to wait in the living room while he checks on Julie. When Mark comes back into the living room, Mark tells the boys Julie is dead. I heard multiple sirens go by my home. And we walked around the corner, and they were all at Julie's home. It was ambulance, it was police, fire trucks. So I approached one of the officers and said, I'm Julie's friend, I'm her neighbor. 
and he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry she didn't make it. It was a moment that I, I, I would like to try to erase from my memory because it was so painful. What happened? I was the DA back then in 1998, and I was at the Kenosha Heart Ball. My page went off, and then they sent me to the Jensen residence. So I was wearing a tuxedo when I responded to the crime scene. When Bob Jamboyce gets on the scene, he connects with detectives, and he tells them to treat this house like a crime scene. We were called this afternoon for a death investigation. Detective Paul Ratzberg pulls out a camcorder and starts recording everything inside of the Jensen home. This is the garage area. He takes video of what's in the garage and the bedroom where Julie Jensen's body was found. Now going down the hallway to the room. I knew it was going to be a difficult case because standing at the foot of Julie's bed, I didn't see any obvious things that caused her death. There were no stab wounds, there were no bruising, there was no battery wounds, there was no gunshot wounds. Here was a, apparently a healthy woman lying dead in her bed. And compounding the mystery, Julie's body is lying in a strange position with her arm kind of twisted beneath her. We don't know how she died. There's no obvious cause of injury. Every suspicious death is to be treated as a homicide and investigated as a homicide until homicide is ruled out. So what we need to do is get consent to search. Then I went and spoke with Mark Jensen. He gave his consent to search. Now entering the children's room. We'll be going over towards the den. And... I point out, you know, we are going to be taking that computer. It was rare to have a computer in a home. If there were computers that were in offices, but the first time we'd ever taken a computer out of a private residence. Julie Jensen's neighbors were shocked to find out that Julie had died. Later that night, I was across the street. I made eye contact with Mark, and he came over and talked to me. And his mannerisms, how he spoke, there was no sadness. There is no devastation. Julie's family and friends are grieving. But Mark Jensen appears to be moving on. It's like he wanted to erase her from his life, from the house. All evidence of her gone. And when police look at the Jensen's computer, they think they find clues to Mark's unusual behavior. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. 
Welcome, mystery enthusiasts. If you're a fan of uncovering hidden clues and solving mind-bending mysteries, then you're in for a treat with June's Journey, the thrilling detective game set in the mesmerizing world of the Roaring Twenties. Dive into the glamour and intrigue as you engage your sense of observation to find hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter unravels a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles, testing your detective skills to the limit. Go deep into the mysteries of June's journey, navigating through intriguing chapters. The thrill of solving each puzzle will keep you coming back for more. The storytelling is absolutely captivating. You'll be hooked from the first chapter. Whether it's during your commute or a cozy evening at home, June's journey is your new go-to game. Make sure you've got that internet connection ready for an uninterrupted detective experience. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Just days after 40-year-old Julie Jensen is found mysteriously dead in her bedroom, her loved ones prepare to say their final goodbyes at her funeral. The funeral in the wake, in fact, it's a blur to me. I still can't believe that she's not here. I had so many questions running through my head about what happened, how did this happen, how could this have happened, because here it's someone that's very close to our age, and here she was, gone, suddenly. At the wake, friends and family noticed newly widowed Mark Jensen acting strangely. I went to the wake, and I was watching Mark, and Mark was standing maybe five feet from her casket, and he had a group of men around him, and he was laughing, joking, and it just was so odd. I'm waiting to see any sign of grief, any sign of the devastation of losing his wife, the mother of his children, and I saw nothing. I'm just looking at him and thinking, if that were me, if all of a sudden my support system fell out, I'd be devastated, you know? And, and I just couldn't help but stare at him and, and think, something doesn't fit here. All people grieve differently, I understand that, but something haunted me about the whole situation that I could not look at Mark without suspicion. After Julie's funeral, her brothers describe going back to her Pleasant Prairie home where Mark is clearing out Julie's belongings. He didn't want to keep anything of Julie's. The day after the funeral, we were at his house making thank you cards. He's giving away kitchen items, offering to my wife pieces of Julie's jewelry, sentimental pieces. He was just wanting to get rid of things right away. I looked at Mark's house and there was I want to say 12, 15, possibly even 20 of the huge, hefty garbage bags just at the curb. And you could see Julie's clothing randomly laying on top of some of those garbage bags. And I'm like, what the heck? It's like he wanted to erase her. He's erasing her from his life, from the house. Why would Mark seem to be erasing his wife? Well, it turns out that in the months before Julie's death, Mark met a new coworker at his brokerage firm, Kelly Labonte. Kelly worked for the big boss. She was his assistant. She was a professional woman. 
in the office. She was young and good looking and confident. Kelly Labonte worked for the same company, but in a different office. In fact, she was based in St. Louis while Mark was based in Racine. Mark Jensen had started working down there, was traveling down there regularly. They had begun to instant message. Instant messaging was sort of a precursor to texting. It was something that occurred over the internet, but at that time, it was sort of fresh and new and exciting. The emails between Mark and Kelly really heated up in intensity in about August, September of 1998. And ultimately, he and she hooked up and became an item, unbeknownst to Julie. We pretty much knew right from the very beginning that Mark and Kelly were in a relationship. What made you believe that they were more than just friends? Because what's the old saying, nothing, you know, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. The doors were closed and they really didn't need to be closed. So there was this open attraction. It was kind of an open secret. Yes. It was obvious that they were having an affair because they were so close together all the time and where they were sitting and kind of huddled up together. And wherever he was, she was and vice versa. There's chemistry, you know, it's the way somebody looks at somebody. Kelly was engaged to another man. And she started seeing Mark. Mark and Kelly, both of them have baggage. He's got a wife, she's got this guy she's about to marry, and then she eventually marries. Uh, she follows through on the wedding, but continues her interest in Mark. And she says things like, it makes me sick when my husband tells me he loves me. Or Mark says, I'm thinking of you when I'm with Julie. There's a really telling email exchange between Kelly and Mark in mid-October of 1998. He says, hey, would you like to run off somewhere? She's, of course, thinking about divorcing her husband. Kelly read that very email aloud in court. You asked me if I wanted to run off with you somewhere. I'd love to, but there are issues we have to deal with. I'm not sure how I'll deal with my issue, thus the deadlines and agreements for any backing out that might be necessary. Do you know how you'll deal with your issues, details, whatever? And so at this point in time, mid-October of 1998, you were not yet sure that you wanted to divorce your husband. Right. Okay, and so that's why you don't want to make a firm commitment at this time. Right. And you set a deadline for yourself and for the defendant of the end of the year. Right. I think she was open to divorce. I don't know that he ever said, I will divorce Julie. Around this time, Julie begins to suspect her husband is having an affair with all that extra time he's spending on the road. It looks like it, yes. I agree with her, 100%, because I told her people commute and nobody stays for three days. Mark Jensen is a narcissist, and he cares only about himself, but he did want to be with Kelly, and he did not want to involve Julie in any part of his life once he was done with her. Okay. Mark, did you kill Julie? Did you have anything to do with her death? 
We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's just weeks after Julie's death, and it appears Mark has moved on. His now girlfriend, Kelly Labonte, has moved in with Mark and his two young sons. Really shortly after Julie died, we have neighbors saying that a woman showed up and just didn't leave. That woman was Kelly Labonte. As police gather evidence in the case, they become increasingly suspicious that there's more to Julie's death than meets the eye. There is discussion of her depression, that she wasn't happy, that she hadn't been herself. And so suicide was certainly a question. A 40-year-old woman to die suddenly is rather unusual. When they did the autopsy, they found nothing um, anatomic to cause the death. So it was a mystery. Investigators waited several months before they questioned Mark Jensen because they wanted to watch his movements after his wife's death. During the investigation, a forensic review of Mark Jensen's home computer was done. And as the authorities were going through the Jensen family computer, they're finding lots and lots of questions. Several emails were found between Mark Jensen and Kelly Levante that were of a sexual and romantic nature. Kelly is not a suspect in Julie's death, but her relationship with Mark shines a light for police on his potential motive. By April 1999, Mark is at the Pleasant Prairie Police Station talking with detectives. He's going to go in and just straighten this up because Julie killed herself, and what more is there to say? Not your typical criminal defendant. His hair is beautifully coiffed. He's probably just came from work. He's in a suit and a tie. Mark Jensen's 1999 interrogation video. What impact did that have? I think Mark Jensen's dishonesty and evasiveness and the sneakiness came through in that interview, particularly when he was asked about Kelly Labonte. Who's Kelly? I'll let you emailing her. Yeah. Who's Kelly? Please, now we're armed with the emails exchange between Kelly Levante and Mark Jensen. And they're flirtatious, and and Mark's like, yeah, no, we're just friends. I'm just looking at a computer on Friday, September 4th. Don't want to work. I just want to be on my drums all day. Hope it doesn't come to that. I'm going to have to go home and try to fix my high-maintenance woman. 
and they both kind of disparage their spouses. Kelly questions whether she made the right decision. Mark says that Julie isn't any fun. I was in the message from you to Kelly. If I if I stopped and got Titanic on the way home, wonder if I could get her to sit next to me on the couch. Low expectations. Was was it tell your girlfriend of yours or was what I remember that struck me was how determined he was to deny that he had any relationship with Kelly Levante. He danced around it and, oh, well, okay, I do, I do know her. We work together, but not that much. Mark lied about Kelly. He lied to police about Kelly. He said that, oh no, we weren't having an affair. You know, the police knew it was a lie. They had those emails. Those aren't uh, emails between friends. Up your right hand. On the witness stand, Kelly Levante confirmed that their sexual relationship began prior to Julie's death. This email that we're looking at um, from you to the defendant, it says, thanks again for yesterday. What a wonderful idea you had and a wonderful time we had. Now the following line begins with the letters, I-D-L-Y. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. What do those letters stand for? I do love you. Then that line would be, I do love you even more now, but no surprise, you are too wonderful for words. Yes. Police also confront Mark with the pornographic photographs that they say he was harassing his wife with for years. There was nobody else that would have a motive to do that, uh, with the exception of you. Okay, because you were pissed off about the affair, uh, so forth and so on. So, I mean, we have all of this, and for you to sit here today and tell me it wasn't me, I find very hard to believe, Mark, I'll be honest with you. I was uh, expecting uh, him to lie to me because previous he was denying any of the uh, pornographic photos being left around the house. There were times it threw away. There were times I, there was a time I was a little shy. Mark admits that he would sometimes get those photographs that he says someone else planted, and he would wait a while before leaving them around the house for Julie to find. Police would never be able to prove that Mark Jensen was behind all that harassment. Julie endured. The police brought up that campaign of harassment because they felt that it was connected to this crime, that this could show that Mark Jensen was capable of not only tormenting his wife, but ultimately taking her life. Julie's affair and the years of harassment that followed matter because it shows how the defendant felt about his wife. He hated her. Did you have anything to do with her death? So the detective did save the smoking gun for last. All of a sudden, the detective hands Mark a piece of paper. Read this. This is the one I've written to your wife. Left me and Mark had never seen it before. And they leave him with the letter. And you see him just looking down and staring at it. I can see the expression on his face change. A letter written by Julie Jensen before she died. A total bombshell that blew this case wide open.
it seemed like a man who killed his wife. She was found dead in their bed. He was having an affair. Was this a suicide or a murder? And did she lay it all out in a secret letter that would keep this case in court for two decades? It's the letter from the grave, the voice from the grave. I mean, it is Julie Jensen speaks. It is a smoking gun, right? If I die, he did it. What if, as the defense suggested, she wanted out of her marriage and she wanted to destroy Mark's life in the process? Pin it on Mark. Could she have been so angry and so vindictive that she plotted this? You have to do something to cause her death. Mark, you're the only person that was there, and you're the only person that could have done anything. When did the conversation take a dark turn? He was talking about how to kill your wife.com and that was what, a website. That's what he said. He looked at. He looked at. It was bombshell stuff. Am I gonna call the police and, and accuse my boss of killing somebody? But Ed, a woman died. You know, a woman died. What happens when somebody's unavailable to be cross-examined because you killed them? As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. It's December 1998 along Lake Michigan in Wisconsin, and we've got an unexplained death, an unfaithful husband, and an uproar in the peaceful village of Pleasant Prairie. People were kind of freaked out. This doesn't happen in Pleasant Prairie. There's a reason it's called Pleasant Prairie. Not the kind of place you would expect to have tawdry, depraved, diabolical scheming and homicide occurring. Pleasant Prairie Police Department, Ron Kossman or Detective Ratzenberg. I took this picture and I'm writing this on Saturday, November 21st, 1998 at 7 a.m. A day after the unexplained death of Julie Jensen here in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, detectives receive what some say is one of the most incriminating documents in the history of murder cases, a handwritten letter from the victim. on it of things that were very suspicious listed on that post-it note drug supply razor blades and syringe could this be a kill list this list was in my husband's business daily planner not meant for me to see i don't know what it means 
she folds it up and she puts it in an envelope and she seals the envelope and she gives it to her neighbors. She came to me and she actually just had this envelope and put it in my pocket. She said, if anything happened, just, you know, give it to the police. And she did that a week and a half before she died. I am suspicious of Mark's suspicious behaviors and fear for my early demise. It's the letter from the grave, the voice from the grave. I mean, it is Julie Jensen speaks. It, it became all of those things. Bob Jamboy's, the prosecutor said, this is Julie speaking to you. It was difficult reading that letter for the first time. But at the same time, it confirmed everything I was feeling. I viewed it as Julie's last will and testament. You know, I felt that this was her testamentary request that if something were to happen to her, she wants people to know I would never commit suicide. My boys are everything to me and my husband would be my first suspect. Months after Julie's death, they interrogate Mark in a little interrogation room in the Pleasant Prairie Police Department. You had to do something to cause her death, Mark. You're the only person that was there, and you're the only person that could have done anything. All of a sudden, the detective hands Mark a piece of paper. This is the one that the bureau left me and the officer run out. It's her right? The detective says, I, I need to go get a snack. And he left Mark alone with Julie's letter. And it appears that that was the first time Mark ever heard about this letter. And he sat there for minutes, no movement, presumably reading. That had to have rattled his world. I do believe profanity was running through his mind. And he was thinking, oh, crap. Oh, crap. I." I can't believe she wrote this letter. What am I going to do now? Here we have Julie Jensen telling me that if she died, you're the person that, that did it. OK? I did not do anything to hurt her. I did not. There was a question between myself and the kids that morning whether or not to call an ambulance. We do know that she pretty much voiced what she put in the letter to a number of people. She told her neighbor, Ted Voigt, that she thought her husband might be either planning to kill her or doing these things to make it look like he was planning to kill her to cause her to do something so that he could then make her look like she's crazy and take her children away. Julie also revealed her concerns about her husband to one of her son's teachers. David Jensen's former third grade teacher, Therese DeFazio, will testify in 2023 that Julie told her she was afraid. She's was worried that he was going to try and kill her with an overdose of some kind of drug. Did she ever say to you that she was concerned that he would make it look like a suicide? She thought for sure he was trying to get her to drink some kind of drug or poison that would kill her. What Julie was really terrified of, I mean, she was afraid of being murdered, but she was even more terrified of Mark divorcing her and taking her children away from her. She's talking to a teacher, a neighbor, 
and certainly could be viewed as she had a profound fear of her husband killing her. At the same time, it could be viewed as she's telling all these people to set up the idea that it was a murder when, in fact, she may have been trying to plan to kill herself. Julie was not a spiteful, vengeful person. For one thing, she never would have taken her own life. For another thing, it's the most ridiculous thing to say that she was framing Mark. I don't know how anyone could believe that, anyone. This is the den area at the Jensen home. The Jensen home computer ended up being incredibly important to this case. That computer was the mother load in many ways. There was so much in there. Right here, you can see in this picture, in the back here, that's the home computer. A picture of the Jensen home computer in their home in 1998. Their suspicion inflamed by Julie Jensen's poison pen letter accusing her husband Mark from the grave, Pleasant Prairie detectives then turned their attention to the Jensen family home computer. This is the den area at the Jensen home. The Jensen home computer ended up being incredibly important to this case. That computer was the mother load in many ways. There was so much in there. The computer was sent to the crime lab the next day, but we didn't get the analysis done until months later. Inside the 10 gig drive of the Jensen's Dell Dimension, the digital equivalent of a bloody fingerprint. Someone's internet search history doubled illegal. But like a guilty conscience, it never really goes away. Mark Jensen had spent well over a month to two months planning his wife's murder. It was a treasure trove of evidence. This long and extensive search history, they had to dig for. They had to recreate because it had been wiped off. Where the testimony is, man, to be the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Thank you. Going to this particular search that's happening, is that for poisoning? That is for poisoning. He thought he deleted everything off this computer, not realizing that when you delete things, they don't actually go away. This one for a pipe bomb? That is correct, yes. They're still there on the hard drive of the computer, uh, which we were able to recover. He didn't know that was going to happen. He's looking for a way to kill her in such a way that he can get away with it. Among the searches that the police find on Mark Jensen's computer in his deleted history are searches for ethylene glycol, antifreeze. This one is labeled antifreeze? Yes. Ethylene glycol is the main component in antifreeze. It doesn't take a whole lot to kill someone, about 100 milliliters, which is about a third of a can of Coke. That is thought to have the potential to kill just about anyone. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible way to die. You start to have difficulty breathing. You're very sick and nauseous. You, your kidneys shut down. How it works, whether it's detected at autopsy, how long does it take to die from ethylene glycol? Respiratory rate rapid, rapid breathing. He's essentially tracking her symptoms, waiting to see when she's going to die. 
we believe that he was panicking because she wasn't dead yet. And so he does what a modern person does all the time now. You look it up on the internet. What stage is she in? Why isn't she dead yet? One of the big issues ultimately became who had the expertise in their family to have done these web searches? Who had the motive? Did Julie plot her own, as she liked to call it, demise? Did she decide to commit suicide with ethylene glycol and pin it on Mark? And did she have the skills to do that on their computer? The evidence will show that both Mr. Jensen and Mrs. Jensen used this computer. It wasn't a family computer. It was Mark Jensen's computer. It was Mark Jensen's computer in Mark Jensen's den. For nearly 25 years, Mark Jensen and his defense attorneys have been arguing that Julie Jensen died by suicide and framed him for murder. Could she have been so angry and so vindictive that she plotted this? What if, as the defense suggested, Julie's death was a suicide carefully orchestrated to frame the man that she had at one point wanted to divorce? What brings us here today is Julie Jensen's suicide. So those searches about ethylene glycol, Julie did those searches. The suicide of a woman who was in a declining mental health, who was seeing her family doctor for prescriptions for her mental illness, for her depression. So she took her own life and made sure that all the pieces pointed to the fact that she was murdered. If this were a suicide with the goal of vengeance, wow. This was really a brilliant plan. No one who knew Julie knew her as someone who was at risk for suicide, and particularly not just suicide, but the most extraordinarily manipulative behavior that would be needed if she had killed herself in this manner. The person who's the manipulator here is Mark Jensen. Ethylene glycol isn't something that they looked for at the initial autopsy. Tipped off by those stunning internet searches, prosecutor Bob Jamboys asked the laboratory to test Julie's remains specifically for ethylene glycol. And they tested for it and ultimately found ethylene glycol. She had a very small amount in her blood, a very small amount in her stomach. Now it's time to get to Mark Jensen's mistake. And that person is Ed Klug. Affairs, antifreeze, a letter from the grave. And just when you think this case can't get any stranger, a surprise witness shows up. I call Ed Klug. What he told me is just shocking. It was a major, major turn in the case. He was talking about the strangest things. I had never heard anybody talk like that. It was really weird. Ed, this is where viewers are going to say, how do you not go to the police? the DA back then in 1998, and I responded to that crime scene. Over the next two or three years, I would take this case to prosecutor's conferences with me. I'd lay out the facts. And the overwhelming response I got 
was that there's not enough to charge this case out. In the four years after Julie's death, Bark was living his life as a free and carefree man. He moved Kelly Labonte from St. Louis to Kenosha. She was a part of his life. She was a part of his children's life. It's a couple of years after Julie Jensen's death before she and Mark get engaged. And I read in the newspaper that Mark Jensen was marrying Kelly Labonte. And I said, you know, this case isn't going to get any better. And that could be victim number two. We've got to charge this case out. You were worried that Mark Jensen could kill again. Yes, could kill. I mean, I thought he would kill again. In March of 2002, Mark is charged with first degree intentional homicide. Bond was originally set at $500,000. He posted that bond and he was released from jail and Mark remained out of custody resuming his life as before for several years while this case wound its way through the system. Kelly Labonte moves in with him, marries him, they have another child and they're raising Julian Mark's two boys as well. His trial's coming up and in 2007 there's a hearing in anticipation of it. Prosecutors are preparing for a pretrial hearing interviewing co-workers of Mark Jensen. One of them just happens to ask, have you talked to Ed Kluge? We've been covering this case for 10 years. Never heard of any guy named Ed Kluge. I call Ed Kluge and say, we hear you have some information that you perhaps know something about Julie Jensen's death and Mark's involvement in it. What can you tell me about this? So I got to know Mark Jensen uh, about two weeks before I joined the brokerage firm. He had been with the company for a few months. I didn't know anybody else there. Ed Klug was a co-worker of Mark Jensen. In the fall of 1998, they were at a convention out of town in St. Louis. And one night, over drinks, they were sort of commiserating about their unhappy marriages. When did the conversation take a dark turn? He talked about how he hated his wife. And then he mentioned websites alluding to ways to get rid of a spouse. And then he talked about poisons. Uh, you know, they're undetectable in a normal autopsy. As the Jensen case winds its way through various hearings and trials over the decades, Ed Klug becomes a fixture on the witness stand, testifying most recently in 2023. You recall him mentioning then ethylene glycol? Yes, I remember ethylene glycol. And then you learned that that's antifreeze? Yes. And he was talking about howtokillyourwife.com and... That was what, a website. That's that he, what he said. He looked at. He looked at. In the research on the internet and all the effects of what the chemicals could do to your body to crystallize you from the inside out and not be detectable, you know, he kept talking about that. Mark Jensen had told him in November of 1998 how to kill your wife. You'd feed her Benadryl and you'd mix it with another drug that would crystallize you from the inside out, which is what antifreeze does. Did you believe that he was going to, that he was serious about this? You know, looking back, you know, I wish I would have taken him seriously. Did it ever occur to you to pick up the phone and call Julie and, and to warn her? You know, I didn't know Julie, but how would she have perceived a call from a stranger that she never knew? Hey, Julie, I was in St. Louis drinking with your husband, and he wants you dead. You know, but that... that just The story just sounded too crazy yeah. to be true. 
he was looking at ways that he would put somebody to sleep. He said you could put it in drinks, have them drink it. So a month goes by, and then what happens to Julie Jensen? So we get a call. Mark's wife passed away, and, you know, and I'm thinking back to all the things he told me, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I know everything that happened. You thought he killed her? Yes. Ed Klug went 10 years before telling police about this. You know, I, I chose not to get involved. I just kind of, like, put it out of my mind. Ed, this is where viewers are going to say, how do you not go to the police? You're believing this man is a killer, and yet you didn't call the police. You didn't call 911. Why? Yeah, and, that, and that's something that I regret. I should have picked up the phone and made the call, but, you know, I am only been at the company for, at that time, like two months. You know, am I going to call the police and, and accuse my boss of killing somebody? You know, what evidence do I have? But, Ed, a woman died. Yeah, I should, I should have gotten involved. That's something that I'll probably regret the rest of my life. Thinking back, you know, if maybe I had said that, you know, maybe you would have gotten rid of me. I was his loose end. I was his problem. You were afraid of him? I was afraid of him, yes. What did you think he would do to you? I don't know. I mean, if he's capable of killing his wife, you know, he could, he could kill me and my children or my wife. The state calls Ed Crew to the stand. Out of the blue, the prosecution calls Ed Klug, and he ambles up to the stand and gets on. He started talking about different websites um, that he had been going to and talking about poisoning his wife. We're all kind of like, well, where have you been? It was bombshell stuff. It was explosive because the only other voice really implicating Mark until that point had been Julie's. So here you have this living, breathing person pointing a finger, and suddenly it's a game changer. Once the judge heard that, the judge said, I need to revisit the issue of bail. I have to say that I wish to address the subject of the bond, given this what I would consider dramatic development. I've got the evidence in front of me, sworn testimony that if it had been in the original complaint would have been positively devastating. Once Judge Schrader heard Ed Kluke's testimony, he increased Mark Jensen's bond to a million dollars and had him taken into custody right then and there. David was in court sitting behind his dad and he hugged his dad before they took his dad off for the first time and for good in handcuffs. It was so galling to us that Mark Jensen had been free since 1998. And so to see him taken into custody at that hearing and see the deputies handcuff him was just, it was truly a special moment. Mark Jensen may be in handcuffs, but there's another problem. The case is getting jammed up by that very piece of evidence prosecutors find so damning. That letter Julie Jensen wrote right before, as she put it, her demise. That letter was so critical to the case that the defense fought tooth and nail to keep it out, and the prosecution fought tooth and nail to keep it in. 
The letter isn't the only message for detectives. Down at the Pleasant Prairie Police Department, the lead detective says he gets an urgent call. After Julie died, Detective Ratzberg did get a call. What did this person say in the phone call? Something to the effect, I think my brother killed uh, my best friend. Julie Jensen dies in 1998. Mark Jensen doesn't come to trial for another 10 years, in large part because of this, a single-page handwritten letter, Julie Jensen's last words. Was it admissible that Julie Jensen put it down in writing that he should be a suspect if anything happens to me? That is a smoking gun, but was it admissible? According to the Sixth Amendment, you have a right to confront your accuser. And in this case, Julie was the accuser by writing this letter and making these statements. The question is, of course, what happens when somebody's unavailable to be cross-examined because you killed them? Should they get off? In some ways, it's a better case without the letter. It's a cleaner case without the letter. Um, but I said, you know, one of the reasons I want to put this letter in is because this is Julie's voice. And I think this victim deserves to be heard. By the time Mark Jensen comes to trial in 2008, the courts have decided Julie Jensen's voice will be heard. Julie Jensen's letter in the 2008 trial was probably the key piece of evidence from opening statements to closing arguments. I mean, these jurors had that letter just like jammed into their brains. It took about three days for the jury to come back with a verdict. My stomach is in knots and my hands are shaking and hoping and praying that the jury comes back with the right verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Mark D. Jensen, guilty of intentional homicide of the first degree as charged in the information. The jury, many of them, focused on the letter. They believed that it was a message from Julie to them. And they were really convinced that she was asking for justice. Knowing that Mark Jensen, in all his arrogance, just did not beat the system, that he did not get away with murdering his wife. It was just the best feeling in the world at that moment. All I'll say is uh, I'm, I'm devastated. I'm, I'm convinced that the jury reached the wrong decision. I'm hopeful that uh, Mark will uh, get a new trial. Nearly 15 years after his conviction, Mark Jensen is back on trial in 2023, right here in the Kenosha County Courthouse. His previous conviction thrown out. The courts decided the jury in 2008 should never have known about Julie Jensen's letter. At this trial, there will be no mention of it. It's pretty significant that this letter is not a part of the 2023 trial. It is a smoking gun, right? I mean, it's like, if I die, he did it. So the prosecution has to live with the rest of their evidence. Bob Jamboyce has said on many occasions in court and on television that without 
the letter from the grave, this would be a very, very difficult case. This is Julie Jensen. She didn't kill herself. She didn't frame her husband to make it look like a homicide. She didn't abandon her kids and try to take away their father too. She lived for her kids and she died because the defendant murdered her. At the very end of this trial, you're going to be asked to answer one question. Did the state prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Jensen caused Julie's death? Or did they prove to you that Mark Jensen wasn't a great husband and was kind of a jerk? Aside from the missing letter, the new trial is nearly a replay of the 2008 case. Fascinatingly, many of the same people are still involved in the case. Bob Jamboys is still there with the same fire in his belly as he had back in 2002 when he charged the case. I know the evidence in this case because it wasn't just Detective Ratzberg that responded on December 3rd, 1998. I was there too. Most of them look older. Mark Jensen, surprisingly, looks really good for a guy who just spent the last uh, 15 years in prison. Julie Jensen had told her sister-in-law, Laura Coster, that uh, she, she was afraid of Mark. Now, did you ever have a conversation with Julie where she said that she thought Mark might be trying to kill her? Yes, we were at her house outside in the front with the kids playing. And she did mention that she thought that Mark might be trying to kill her. And I looked at her because I was, I was stunned. And she looked back at me and she said, you don't see it. I said, I don't. After Julie died, Detective Ratzberg did get a call from Laura Coster. Shortly after Julie Jensen's death, did you receive a phone call from a person who identified herself as Laura Coster? Yes, I did. And um, what did this person say in the phone call? Something to the effect, I think my brother killed uh, my best friend. Laura denies that she ever spoke to Ratzberg about uh, her, her belief that her brother murdered Julie Jensen. You're denying that you had any conversation with Detective Ratzberg um, by phone during that time period? I do. Isn't it true that you did speak to Detective Ratzberg? No. Um, isn't it true that you told Detective Ratzberg that you were concerned, that you were worried that your brother killed your best friend? No, I didn't know Detective Ratzberg. Among the familiar faces parading through this second trial, two men Mark Jensen met behind bars, and they have damning stories to tell about Mark and Annie Freaks. Testimonies continue in the trial of a Milwaukee man accused of killing his wife with antifreeze and sleeping pills. This courthouse was packed with media from across the nation interested in what would happen to Mark Jensen this time around. One of the key prosecution witnesses is Aaron Dillard, a career con man who was briefly jailed with Mark Jensen and snitched on him. Dillard first spoke to 2020 back in 2008. He was abused in there. What, what was happening? Oh, well, he was getting beat up. People picking on him, things like that, bullying up on him, trying to get money from him. 
Why, why would a man who's being charged with murder want to talk about that to you? I don't know. I mean, everybody talks in jail. I mean, if you were ever in jail, people just mouth off about the stupidest things sometimes. Aaron Dillard took the stand in the 2008 trial to tell his story. You saw me swear the testimony is man. And now, in 2023, he's ready to testify again. He said, I really screwed up when I told Edward Klug that I wanted to kill my wife. Did, did he ultimately tell you that he did, in fact, kill his wife? Yes. I thought he was crazy telling me everything that he was doing. And then he had told me about how he would have her buy all his medications. So it showed that she was doing it, and he was kind of trying to make it look like she was commit, trying to commit suicide. Did he tell you anything else about this? Uh, yes, he, he told me that he gave her juice with antifreeze in it. The next day, he said that uh, she was breathing really raspy in the morning, and he said that if she's not feeling better when you get home from school, we'll, we'll call an ambulance for her. And Did then, he tell you what happened then after uh, he told that to the children? Yeah, he took them to school, and then he went back home, and Julie was breathing better. So at that point, he felt nervous and figured he had to do something on his own, and he sat on her back and then pressed her face into the pillow. Did he tell you what happened when he sat on her and with her face pushed into the pillow? Yeah, she passed away. She wasn't dying quickly enough because he'd promised the children that he would take mommy to the hospital. He had to make sure she was dead before the kids got home. The defense picked apart Aaron Dillard on the stand because he had a lengthy rap sheet. And they noted that Dillard benefited from testifying, that prosecutor Jamboys had written a letter about his cooperation, and that could help him with the charges pending against him. And remember Ed Klug. What did you think he would do to you? If he's capable of killing his wife, you know, he could, he could kill me and my children. Well, prosecutors say he had good reason to be afraid. David Thompson was another snitch who had spent some time in a cell block with Mark Jensen. He said, well, you know, this guy, Mr. Klug, is um, testifying against me. He said the air was a thorn in his side. Thorn in his side. Those yes, were his words. Those were his words. Then he mentioned, uh, I wish I could just get rid of him. Make him disappear? Make him disappear. I'm, I'm thinking dollar signs now, so I'm thinking, well, how can I trick this guy out of some money? So I asked him, I said, well, you know, probably can make that happen for you for the right price. What did Mr. Jensen say to ask you or say to you? Oh, um, well, how much? I just gave him a roundabout answer. I said, well, man, $1,000, you know, just to see what he would say. He said, that's, that's kind of low, but I can do that. So he was excited about it? Yeah, he was excited about it. I could not believe for the life of me that he'd been into this. So I, I, took, him, I took him on a full ride. I told him I could have someone, um, kidnap them and sell them until um, court days were over with. And what was plan B? Plan B was to, was to totally get him out of the picture, just get rid of him. Just kill Ed Clue. Yeah. You were gonna you were gonna kill somebody for a thousand dollars. I was I was locked up. How was I gonna do anything to anyone? It was all fictitious. It never was gonna happen. I just wanted the money. And I called my girlfriend at the time and um I told her I said I'm gonna have uh, Mark call you and when he gets on the phone I want you to tell him that everything is as planned. Hello? had no clue what was what was going on she's just going along with what i tell her and then mark you know 
giving the sketchiest phone call on earth to Kelly Labonte asking for money. He didn't want to discuss what it was for. He was trying to be cryptic. It was something I think I want to have my folks take care of. Uh-huh. And I might have you give them some money, just a little bit, and then I'll explain that to you. Okay. Okay? Not right now. How much? Maybe like 500. Okay. Maybe twice, and that would be it. Mark Jensen's words proved that he was going to try to facilitate this. Jensen was never charged in that alleged plot. What was Mark Jensen's reaction? He walked around the cell block with, a, with, with his head held up high like his, all his problems were about to melt away. The defense noted that no money was ever paid to Thompson and claimed that the alleged plot was all his idea. And they argued that a positive letter written by prosecutors after Thompson testified may have gotten him a lesser sentence in another case. One of the most anticipated witnesses in this trial was the son of Julie Jensen and Mark Jensen. We had never heard from David Jensen before. He told us to wait in the living room um, while he went down the hallway to the uh, the bedroom uh, to check on our uh, to check on our mom. Uh, he came out crying not a uh, not terribly long after he went down. He was uh, sobbing and told us to stay there. David, when you saw your dad um, coming down that hallway sobbing or crying had you ever seen him that way before that was the first time i'd seen him cry i can only imagine that the defense called him because they wanted to just show that the sons were supporting their dad his wave to his father on the way out that said it all in terms of where he stood the prosecution's closing by carly mcneil spoke to believing julie jensen she didn't want to be labeled as crazy, and she didn't want to lose her kids. With her death, Julie Jensen lost David and Douglas. And in death now, nearly 25 years later, she's labeled as crazy. Defense attorney Jeremy Perry urged this jury to hold prosecutors to their burden to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. We heard from witnesses that Julie Jensen was a lovely human being. But you can be lovely and you can be devoted to your kids and you can be mentally ill. And Julie Jensen was mentally ill. She had a major depressive disorder and was at high risk of suicide. As deliberations begin, there's concern that the jury was never able to see that letter Julie Jensen wrote, pointing the finger at her own husband, Mark, for her murder. I worried that he might not be found guilty without the letter. It was, it was really unknown as to what was going to happen. It's uh, been about two hours and 25 minutes that they uh, deliberated today, the jury out there in Wisconsin. They're waiting for that verdict to come back from these jurors. As that wait continued, Julie Jensen's brother, Larry Griffin, took time to speak to the courthouse media. People who did not know you will never experience what a kind, gentle nature person you were. He also showed family photos of Julie and talked about getting help for other victims of domestic abuse. And finally, he sang the Beatles song, In My Life, as a tribute. In my life, I love you 
Mark Jensen's retrial lasted three weeks, and now, after just over six hours of deliberation, the jury is ready with their verdict. I sat there and waited with, again, knots in my stomach, and my hands were shaking, and my heart was racing. State of Wisconsin versus Mark D. Jensen, 2002 CF314 verdict. We, the jury, find a defendant, Mark D. Jensen, guilty of intentional homicide of the first degree. When he heard guilty, no expression at all. It was just as emotional as it was the first time. Anything else from the state? In a statement to ABC News, Mark Jensen's attorneys say they are very disappointed in the jury's verdict, adding that Mark Jensen is innocent, and they hope that one day that truth will be realized. Prosecutor Carly McNeil reflected on the years that her co-counsel Bob Jamboys pursued justice for Julie Jensen. He did it because he cares so much about what happened to Julie Jensen. So just to be clear, do you think Mark Jensen will get another trial? No, he will not. But if he does, I'll be back and I'll try that son of a again. As for Kelly Labonte, who married Mark Jensen after Julie died, she divorced him in 2009 after his first trial and conviction. Kelly continued to raise Julie's children after Mark Jensen went to prison. And in recent years, Julie's brother says her son Douglas, now an adult, reached out to him. Douglas wanted to know more about his, his mom. And so I was able to meet with him and uh, tell him that Julie loved him more than anything in the world and she never would have left him. As a mother, your whole goal in life is to protect and nurture your children and to see them through their childhood so that they would always know every day of their life how much she loved them. He murdered her so that she couldn't do that. Now his kids will know the truth. Mark Jensen has said he will once again be appealing his conviction. He'll be sentenced this April. In the meantime, that is our program for tonight. Thank you for watching. I'm David Muir, and from all of us here at 2020 and ABC News, good night. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.